Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Vincent Shen, and it is Tuesday, August 23rd, here to discuss the latest in the consumer and retail sectors. Join me from West Palm Beach via Skype is Fool.com contributor, Mr. Dan Klein. Hey, Dan. Great to have you hey, on the show you? again. How's it going? I'm happy to not be traveling at the moment. Yes, yeah, so you uh, and I were just talking about your move, and how many times will you have made the drive from Florida <laughs> to Connecticut? Because that's absurd. Five, maybe? Um, oh, my goodness. I brought our stuff down in a U-Haul. I had to bring my wife's car down, and now I have to go back and get the rest of our stuff in a rented SUV. So I'm just about done, and I've I've pretty much done this podcast from anywhere on the East Coast. You could do it. Well, I hope that, you know, at least during part of your drive, we'll, you will be entertaining yourself with our wonderful slate of Motley Fool podcasts. I'll be uh, letting them keep me company the whole way. <laughs> All right. So, for this example, uh, for this episode of Industry Focus, Dan, I wanted to start our conversation by playing a short clip of you, actually. So, this clip was taken from the May 31st episode of IF when Dan and I covered the controversy and some of the intrigue surrounding the entertainment giant Viacom its management team, board of directors, and the Redstone family primarily, which holds a majority control of the company. So for listeners who missed that episode, definitely check it out if you want to get a, an example of an ongoing case study in corporate politics and power grabs. This is the best way I can describe it. Basically, Sumner Redstone, now 93 years old, he led Viacom for many years, but recently his health has declined. And it's resulted in his previously estranged daughter, Sherry, calling the shots publicly, at least, as she essentially wrangled control of the company from CEO Philly Dowman. So here's Dan making his prediction at the time of what would ultimately happen at Viacom. As you look at this now, it's all very exciting. Oh, the board is suing, and will DeMond be replaced? And you know, there, there's, there's a lot of Shakespearean intrigue here. But if you really step back, the reality is... Sherry Redstone is going to end up controlling this. It's a question of whether she controls it before her father dies, after her father dies, or maybe it'll take a few years, but she'll end up controlling this trust and independent people and outsiders are not going to be able to sort of get in the way of a family-dominated Sumner Redstone hand-picked board of trustees. So no matter what you call her, if you're looking at CBS and Viacom, you have to realize she's the big boss at the end of it. So Dan, three months later, (laughs) the dust seems to have settled. How close was your prediction? Well, it's dead on, but I wish I could you know, claim to be some sort of prognosticator or seer. But the reality was, Sherry Redstone is going to control her father's stake. And whether Sumner has died or isn't with us anymore in terms of his mental capacity, it was an inevitability. So I predicted something that pretty much had to happen. Sherry Redstone does not want Philippe Doman in charge of Viacom. So eventually, he was not going to be in charge of Viacom. I'm surprised that it happened this quickly, uh, but I'm not surprised at all that it happened. Okay, so Philippe's out. And uh, just for a little bit more background, too, again, for the listeners who may not be as familiar with the story, was there any particular catalyst or, uh, I guess, driver that you felt led to this falling out between Sherry and Philippe? Because Philippe was previously you know, uh, 
Sumner's like protege, essentially, very close to the family, I feel. Sure. I mean, there's two things. There's the general stock performance. Viacom has not done well. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's down significantly over the past few years. And second, he wanted to sell a stake in Paramount, which even Sumner Redstone, who'd been his biggest supporter, was pretty widely known to not be in favor of. So it was really a case of, you know, if you have the results, if Doman had been killing it, now all the movies had been hits and everything had been going great, well, then there's not much Sherry Redstone can say, even if her and her dad actually wanted to, to wrest control away. But the reality is when it's not performing well and he's trying to do something, you've basically, as the majority owner, they control the majority of the stock through national amusements. If he's trying to do something you don't want done, you have every right to step in and stop it. And that's what she did. It just gets all the more sort of palace intrigue because we don't know if her father is aware of what's going on or really if he's aware of anything at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, like I mentioned, he's 93 years old. His health has been declining, and he hasn't made a public appearance in at least a year. And basically, all these statements that come out are essentially, uh, essentially interpreted through Sherry. So there's definitely a, a bit of room there for her to kind of control what goes out to the public and what's going on behind the scenes as well. The smart thing, though, is Sherry Redstone played this well. You know, instead of putting her own person in or naming herself CEO, she put Tom Dooley in the role. He was the COO beforehand, and he's someone who's sort of risen his way through the ranks. So he's very popular with the rank and file. So you know, you're ousting Doman, but you're sorting put a sort of putting everybody's you know favorite uncle in the in the seat. And while Dooley only has the job until the end of September, it's possible if he shows he can sort of follow directions while also leading the company that he could keep the job for a longer period of time. Okay. And uh, jumping back to something you had mentioned uh, that was, I guess, a point, major point of concern for the Redstone family with Diamond's performance. You know, you said the stock's down. It's actually largely been flat since the last time we talked about it in May, but obviously in the previous two years, it's been down well over 40%. I think the share price was previously closer to $90. Now it's around 46 I believe, per share. And so, do you think now that this kind of whole episode is resolved. I think the agreement they came to ended all lawsuits among the various parties involved in this. Well, it it, it ended the lawsuits between Doman, the board, Sherry Sumner, but actually um, one of the other grandchildren, uh, Karen, Karen, I don't know how to say her name, Redstone, who's Sherry's niece, has also filed a lawsuit saying she's a benefactor of the trust and she was not in any way consulted on this move. So I think this is one of those situations that un- until maybe 18 months, a year, maybe a little less after Sumner Redstone dies, there's going to be lawsuits flying everywhere because there's a lot of money involved. It's a very complicated setup with national amusements controlling not just Viacom, but also CBS and sort of all sorts of different ownership stakes, as well as you know different people who are benefactors that don't necessarily get a vote, but sort of do make some money from this. So the principal legislation is over in terms of... Uh, the ability to run Viacom and where it's going to go going forward, but I would expect lawsuits to keep flying in this case. Wow. So the plot thickens there, at least. Um, do you feel like shareholders at this point are uh, reassured, though, that kind of company leadership can turn its vote fo- or re- return its focus to the business, and or do you feel like the optics around this whole power struggle still have investors kind of concerned that hey, this really isn't necessarily over yet? If I was an investor, I'd be very concerned about this management. You've watched 
two rivals, at least on the Paramount side, Disney and Comcast, snap up guaranteed hits. Disney with Marvel and Pixar, Comcast to a lesser extent with DreamWorks Animation, where they bought some some big name properties. And then you have Paramount, which doesn't have any of those. You know, if you look at their movie slate, you know, there's a few things, a few sort of tired sequels in the pipeline, but they don't have, you know, Jurassic World or Star Wars or Indiana Jones or anything that's going to be an obvious billion dollar franchise. So as all these deals were getting done, I have to question where was Viacom management? Where was Paramount? And can this group, do they do they have the wherewithal going forward? They've done well on the TV side, but maybe it's time to merge that back with CBS. Yeah, I should note for uh, on the investor side and just with the company in terms of its business segments, you know, its media networks is the bigger business. Uh, obviously, I think the filmed entertainment with some of the blockbuster releases definitely gets a lot of attention too, but it's quite a bit smaller. But really, the most rec- recent example of how the company and Paramount has struggled, and I think that was uh, a kind of starting off point for a lot of the debate among what to do with Paramount. They had a huge misstep again this past weekend, uh, really poor showing for their religious epic, Ben-Hur. I think it had something like a $100 million production budget, not even including marketing and advertising. The movie managed to generate just about $11 million domestically in its opening weekend, so pretty uh, significant uh, it's significantly below expectations. It's an epic flop because you know they were marketing to a religious audience, and that audience has done very well taking a small budget movie and making it a mild hit. Really, aside from Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, you have not seen a big budget faith based movie justify the expense. So you took a film that you know nobody was clamoring to have Ben Hur remade, and. They failed pretty badly getting the target audience excited, so it's going to go down to be an epic bomb, and it's also doing very badly uh, on foreign soil. So this is not one of those movies that's going to tank in the U.S., but you know China or some other foreign market is going to somewhat mitigate it. This is a movie that's going to end up losing, you know, maybe over a hundred million dollars, which is pretty hard to do these days. Mm-hmm. And. For 2016 overall, uh, from what I saw, I think Paramount had about nine or ten films out. Only one of them, uh, the recent Star Trek Beyond, has managed to break $100 million for domestic box office. So this is obviously part of their trend where they have been struggling. Yeah, and even the Star Trek franchise has been a disappointment. It's sort of like the X-Men movies versus the Marvel movies. They do okay. They're almost hits. They're kind of hits. But especially Star Trek does not have some of the same foreign appeal as maybe a Star Wars or a Jurassic Park. So, you know, once again, this is a company that needs hits and, you know, they'll do Star Trek 4, but there's no guarantee that it's going to do any better than Star Trek 3. Mm-hmm. Okay, so last question before we move on here. What do you think should be the fi- first priority on Sherry Redstone's list to do to list now? I think she has to figure out you know, what they're going to do with Paramount. And that probably means overhauling it top to bottom. Is Tom Dooley the guy who could lead that? Maybe he is. You know, he's got good relationships. He has, you know, a lot of capital within the company. But clearly, they need to be more aggressive and they need to be smarter. You know, when you're spending $100 million on a movie that does not have the religious audience pre-sales and all the things you would need to sort of guarantee you're going to get some of your money back, then you really have to look at everything from the marketing department to who's greenlighting these movies. Okay, so for our moving on to our next topic here, uh, it, I think we're going to talk about somebody else who's often in the headlines, usually for more <laughs> positive reasons. But that you know, this is our "quote unquote" favorite underdog in the wireless carrier space, and that's T-Mobile and their recent offer or their recent push to move all of their plans to unlimited, right? 
So when I watched this press conference, I went, you know, oh my God, this is another move where T-Mobile is just slapping AT&T and Verizon in the face and saying, I dare you. You want to charge overages. You want to charge all this money. You want to not offer unlimited plans. Here we go. What was interesting is during the press conference, John Legere, the CEO of, or John Ledger, as he pronounces it, the CEO of T-Mobile, he took a swipe at Sprint and he said, well, I can tell you what Sprint's going to do. Six months from now, they're going to copy us. And the reality is Sprint almost immediately came out with a pretty similar offer. So basically, both companies are offering unlimited plans where a family of four can get each align unlimited data with some caveats for $160. How they build to that $160 varies. Sprint is cheaper if you're just getting two or three lines. T-Mobile becomes cheaper after four lines. But essentially, they're both pushing family plans with $160 for four lines unlimited data. Okay. And you mentioned some caveats, and this was something we were talking about previously, too, because essentially, there are some people who are such large consumers of data, they kind of put a cap on that, right? So T-Mobile spells it out the most clearly, but both companies have policies in place. T-Mobile basically says to our top 3% of users, people that use over, I want to say 26 gigabytes in a billing period, that when needed, we will slow your service down. Meaning they're not going to cut them off. They're not going to say you can't use it, you can't buy in. But at times that you or I, regular users, are looking to have high-speed data and the network is being stressed out, the absolute top tier of sort of data hogs will get throttled. So it does put an asterisk on unlimited, but the reality is for most people, this is not a factor. Yeah. So your view, you know, in the next year or two, do you think that this is going to have to, you know, we've seen (laughs) some of their other uncarrier initiatives from T-Mobile push uh, the leaders here, obviously Verizon and AT&T, to emulate them or at least do something to to kind of respond. I I think eventually they're going to get there kicking and screaming. Verizon has started advertising a four-line family plan for, I think, 150, where maybe you get three gigs of data each or something like that. But if I could get unlimited, and the networks are pretty close. I mean, Verizon is a little bit better on most of the surveys, but T-Mobile is very close and Sprint is not that far behind. Why am I going to pay more money for a tiny bit better network with big limitations and overages or having to buy a bigger plan than I need just so I don't go over? So you've seen AT&T and Verizon kind of slowly inch their way towards the T-Mobile model, and it might take another year. It might even take two. But eventually, just like it happened with minutes and just like it happened with text messages, the default plan is going to be unlimited. And then, of course, AT&T and Verizon will find some other way to charge overages for something else. Maybe it'll be uh, virtual reality content or holograms or who knows. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just to go, go ahead. I say I remain confident that however this spells out, AT&T and Verizon are going to find a way to charge more money. Uh, I would I, I want to end the segment just uh, to give our listeners a little bit of perspective here. The T-Mobile right now it definitely still has quite a bit of runway in that you know T-Mobile and Sprint, the number three and number four respectively, they're at about sixty to sixty-five million subscribers as of the second quarter of this year. Verizon, AT&T double those numbers. Verizon has one hundred forty-three million almost. AT&T almost one hundred thirty-two. And in the most recent, and for the second quarter actually, uh, Verizon, AT&T, and T-Mobile all managed to 
uh, generate net subscriber additions, with T-Mobile leading that pack with about almost 1.9 million additions. Sprint was the the sole the one loser. They they had about 360,000 or 360,000 net losses. But just to give you an idea, again, T-Mobile has shown a lot of momentum. I think in the past couple of years, and you know, eventually passing Sprint and continuing to to widen that gap. Yeah, it's also worth noting that you know T-Mobile, in moving into number three, has been adding phone customers, traditional postpaid phone customers, while AT&T and Verizon have been adding connections, people who already have an account or maybe don't, adding an iPad or some other tablet. So it's a huge gulf between T-Mobile and AT&T and Verizon, but they're actually, you know, they're gaining faster than you would expect, and I think it's nine, maybe ten quarters where they've added a million plus subscribers. So you know, it's going to take a long time for consumer habit. There is a built-in market perception that AT&T and Verizon are better because they've told us they're better for a very long time, and until very recently, they were better. But now that that's not so much the case, you might see a point where consumers just start shopping via price, and when that happens, you know, AT&T has the ability to use DirecTV, to use its broadband service, other things to make packages better, which could ultimately be good for it. Uh, Verizon has that to some extent, but it doesn't have a national brand like DirecTV. So this is going to get interesting, and the pricing is going to come down, which is good for consumers. Yeah, when it comes down to it, uh, if you're in a major city population center, you probably won't notice a big difference. It's really when you get out of those areas that I think, especially Verizon and AT&T, really shine in terms of offering a little bit better coverage. I'm a T-Mobile customer, and the only place I've ever noticed a service problem was rural New Hampshire. I could get a Sprint signal, I could get AT&T and Verizon, or the people who were with me could, uh, but I had to use wireless calling, which, given that they offer wireless calling, pretty much if you have Wi-Fi, you're pretty much covered with T-Mobile as long as you know, you're not going to spend a ton of time in a rural setting. Okay, so I will make sure to keep that in mind, uh, especially with my fiance. She has T-Mobile. We'll stay out of rural New Hampshire. Thanks for the heads up, Dan. <laughs> so uh, for the last story, and I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about this because it's really interesting. Uh, I wish we had covered it a little bit closer to the actual announcement date, which was earlier this month. But Disney and their one billion dollar investment in a minority stake in BAM Tech coming from the MLB. So just a little bit of background here: uh, Disney acquired a thirty-three percent stake of a BAMTech, which is basically the kind of streaming content, streaming video arm, originally created by MLB, I think in 2000, to help the league uh, with their different team websites. But this billion dollars is going to be paid in two installments, uh, one now and one in January 2017, giving Disney also the option to acquire majority ownership in the future. But I, I, this obviously plays into a lot of the long-term issues that we've seen uh, with Disney, with ESPN. Uh, oh, I, I'm going to let you kick it off from there, Dan. Sure. This is a really smart play by Disney. Because if you look at where BAM Tech is, they're the technology behind, most notably, WWE Network. So they have it down in terms of a subscription model, delivering content direct to your house with all sorts of on-demand. I'm a WWE Network subscriber. It works really well. So what Disney's going to do with this is at first, they've already said they're going to launch a sports platform. They haven't specified 
define what that's going to mean, but let's assume it's going to rope in a bunch of ESPN content. And the reason for that is cable subscriptions are going down and more networks are offering skinny bundles. And some of those skinny bundles do not include ESPN, meaning you'll have the ability to get cable and say, I don't want ESPN. Given that Disney gets paid about $6.50 a customer for every cable home that gets ESPN, whether they want it or not, they need a venue to charge more than that to the people who desperately want it but don't necessarily want cable. So the guy who's a huge SEC fan or a huge Big Ten, Big 12, whichever you know college network, or they, they love Major League Baseball or whatever other things Disney has rights to, they might be able to spend $19.95 a month and get a huge sports package from ESPN where Disney will do better than it was doing from the cable company, so maybe one new customer will make up for the loss of three or four customers. This is very much a future play. So, billion dollars is probably one of Disney's bigger deals uh, since uh, in the string of acquisitions. But you know, I think CEO Bob Iger has a really good track record when it comes to his different deals, be it with Lucasfilm, Marvel. Those have obviously proven themselves to be very long-term, forward-thinking plays that have worked out very lucratively for the company and with Bamtech now uh, to be cl- I think the service the co- Disney mentioned that the service that they want to release will be out by the end of the year right be out by the end of the year and it's going to be the first of many I mean you already have Disney in Europe uh, and other markets has talked about or even launched I don't remember exactly a service with some of its children's networks so Disney owns so much content and it's content that people really want you know there's a lot of cable networks that people could live live or die with you know that you know who cares if you get uh you know, I, I don't know, the cooking network. Maybe it has a small cadre of devoted fans or VH1 you know, or MTV. Yeah, people like them, but if you don't have them, it's probably not the end of the world. If you have a young child and you don't have the Disney channels, you will pay anything they charge in order to get them. The same is true when you get to teenagers or, or, or tweens with some of that programming. So Disney's ability to use BAM tech to create all sorts of different packages without having to make that technology investment is huge. And it's also worth noting that they're offsetting some of the purchase price with the fact that this is a company, I mean, it's a private company, but it's a company that has revenue. So they're already taking a cut of the WWE Network subscriptions, which is like 1.3 million. They're already getting a cut of the different Major League Baseball packages. So this was a huge technology buy that also, you know, sort of offsets itself. Yes. And some of Bantech's other uh, clients or other uh, services that kind of run through their technology, uh, obviously MLB, the creators, but also NHL, WWE, like you mentioned, even HBO, actually. So uh, right. and NHL has revenue. a small stake in it as well, so they're yeah. not going anywhere. Uh, annual revenue, from what I could find, I think this came from the New York Times, for Bantech is actually about $900 million. And so, yeah, like you mentioned, it, that stake has uh, some of that revenue flowing back to Disney now that they have that uh, one-third stake in the company. And uh, for Bamtech, the package that Disney is planning to release by the end of the year, you know, they have all this content uh, that you mentioned with sports and ESPN that they don't even air. So there is not, from what I could find, there's not going to be a crossover between what you see on traditional television, ESPN, and this service that they're planning to release at the end of the year. But it's basically all the things that they currently have the rights to, but don't air. But uh, and I think that with college sports or maybe other sports uh, beyond the major leagues that maybe just aren't as popular relatively, but do have their audience. This will be a a, a big uh, 
offering for those viewers who are interested in that essentially? Sure. I mean, at first it's a very regional service. It's, you know, they're, uh, they're televising the Rutgers football game that otherwise wasn't going to make it on the air. And to a very small percentage of people multiplied over tons and tons of content, that works. But eventually, this is going to be ESPN. It's going to be SportsCenter. It's going to be all of the Disney content because you know they're going to be very respectful of their cable partners. They're not going to break things off until they absolutely have to. But you've seen they're part of Sling TV. They're part of the, uh, the Sony View service. Eventually, as cable becomes weaker and doesn't have the leverage to say to Disney, oh, hey, we're doing great by you. Don't, don't take your stuff away. They're going to have to offer a standalone option for their content. And I think eventually that will be everything Disney owns, from its from its movies to its television channels uh, to all the sports content. And this is really about buying the platform that will let them deliver that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Sling TV and uh, PlayStation View as the skinny bundles. I think during the earnings call, Disney also mentioned that uh, they're part of the AT&T Direct TV now service over that's going to be going over the top. Uh, I don't. I'm not sure on the all the details around that, but it's another essentially offering uh, or package that they will be a part of, and that's really there. Are important. So, there are so many skinny bundle packages in the works that are essentially variations on Sling TV. That if right now you stopped the show and announced one, I would not be surprised at all. <laughs> you know, th- this is a wild west where. Once one company negotiates a rights deal, and originally, from what I've read, I would say the the Sling rights deal is not a great one. It has caps on how many they can eventually sell. But now that Sony has come along, you're starting to see parameters for these agreements. And once you see sort of a base price in place, it becomes easier for a small company, a new company, a big company, whoever it is, to go to to TBS or, or CNN or whoever it is, and obviously their parent companies, and say, okay, I want these channels. I'd like to pay based on what Sony's paying, based on what these other parameters are. It becomes a lot like the music uh, streaming space, where once Apple made its deal, you then had the ability for all these other companies to come in and negotiate deals as well. Okay, uh, so thanks a lot, Dan, uh, for your thoughts. I want to end this segment on one final thought, very recent too, and it's the fact that with ESPN and all of its content, uh, or moving some of its content to this service that they'll be announcing soon, it kind of reflects a trend I think was seen with the 2016 Olympics too in Rio. Uh, NBC, which is part of Comcast, they saw significant declines in their traditional TV audience for usually one of the I think biggest draws essentially for the year when the Olympics are airing. And on the other hand, their live streaming of events like skyrocket. I think it was triple digits from the 2012 London Olympics, especially among younger demographics. So while it's not like a one-to-one trade-off, uh, the dynamic is certainly something that I think Disney sees, knows is coming, and they're kind of thinking long-term. Bob Iger knows that, hey, he, you know, I, I don't remember when his tenure runs out to another couple of years, but this is setting the company up and shareholders up for the long term. It's a trend, and Disney's playing it carefully. Eventually, we're going to be in an all-streaming universe, or a mostly streaming universe. What we don't know is what the timetable is. I think you can take some things away from this Olympics, but you can also look at the fact that there were no bad guys. There was no you know, Russia to, to battle the U.S. for medals, so generally we walked away with the medal count, which maybe made the Olympics less interesting, which probably drove away some of the television audience as well. So you see signs that 
that streaming is moving forward, but you don't see an end date for cable yet. So this is Iger saying, I'm going to stay where I am, but I'm also going to go to the future. And it's a very smart play. Yep. Essentially hedging his bets. So that is a wrap for us today, but you can continue the conversation via Twitter at MF Industry Focus or send us any questions or comments via email to industryfocus at fool.com. You can also enjoy the other great podcasts from Motley Fool by checking out fool.com slash podcast. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based only on what you hear during the program. Thanks for listening and Fool on. 